0: Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 137, four self-respect mistakes that first-year students make. Two weeks ago, Denora and I shared an article from Affordable Colleges Online, and we highlighted four common academic mistakes that first-year students make regularly. Last week, we focused on the financial mistakes that students tend to make, and this week's episode focuses on the common mistakes that students make that have to do with not having enough self-respect for themselves, and these mistakes include having too many distractions, not having a support system in place, not getting enough sleep, and not asking for help when you need it. In the article that inspired this series, they call this type personal mistakes, but that didn't really work for me in Denor because everyone makes these mistakes, so they they really can't be personal. What we feel they look more like is mistakes in self-care, or maybe you should call that self-respect, ignoring your needs because of pressures or beliefs that make you feel bad about taking care of them. So. Let's talk about these issues with self-respect or self-care, starting with too many distractions.
1: Let's be honest. modern life is full of distractions. Not only are we bombarded by advertising everywhere we look, we carry a handy distraction producer with us at all times. our phones, text messages, messenger apps, social media, email, phone games it's all there at the top of a screen. Or, as as older folk might say, touch of a button. Even if we turn off the phone, our computers bring just as many distractions to the table. Today, most computers have messenger apps that coordinate with your phone's text message system. And of course, social media, other messenger apps, email, web-based games, and video games are right there, waiting for you to open them up, use them, and get completely distracted by them.
0: In more pragmatic terms, we also set ourselves up to be distracted by not eating, By not sleeping enough or at all, and generally not taking care of our body's needs. Hunger can definitely be a distraction, as can being tired. And, of course, there's all sorts of social and interpersonal things that can become big distractions. A fight with a friend, or a fight between two mutual friends, or a breakup, or a friend's breakup, just to give a few examples. And that doesn't even include the distractions the world is producing right now. The news always has something to distract and worry us these days. So here are some ways to deal with the nearly infinite levels of distraction you're presented with on a daily basis. First,
1: put yourself on an electronic diet. This means controlling how much time you spend on certain apps or websites. For example, you can use the self-control cold turkey or freedom apps to block social media websites while you're trying to work on a project or study for an exam. Second, when you're in class, Put your phone on airplane mode and silent mode and put it somewhere where you can't see it teachers one way to help students deal with the loss of their phones is to set a two-minute text break in the middle of class where everyone can check their texts and emails so they feel connected this may seem silly but for most of your students who have always been continuously connected to the world and to their friends and family it's not silly at all it's vital
0: third Use your phone to encourage you not to be distracted. The Forest app, which I love, gives you a reason not to touch or pick up your phone when you're trying to get things done. And it rewards you by growing a forest on the app. You can set it for 25 minutes and it will grow a tree as long as you don't touch the phone. And you can combine forest with the Pomodoro technique. Set forest for 25 minutes, work while it's running, and then take a 5 or 10 minute break once it's stopped for a marked increase in your protocol. Fourth, make sure you've addressed your body's needs. Eat... And eat enough and eat regularly. Get enough sleep. Check out our episode 105 for more help on this. Fifth, set boundaries with yourself about your friend's problems. Yeah, it sounds impossible sometimes, but you can say, look, I can sit with you for an hour while you vent about this because it sounds really painful. But after that, I've got to go study, okay? And then keep to that boundary.
1: Sixth, put yourself on a media diet. Don't have the TV on in the background all the time. Decide what show you will watch and only watch that show. Don't channel surf trying to keep up with everything. You can't, and it will only frustrate you to try. See our episode 116 for more information on how to get past FOMO, or the fear of missing out, for more help on this. But what about if you don't have any support system when you're at school? When you're away from home at college for the first time, you may feel isolated and alone, and that can be really scary. Homesickness all aside, it's hard to feel like you can deal with challenges, whether those are a breakup, an exam, or a difficult professor, if you also feel like you have to do it all alone. Building a support system can really help with this problem.
0: Now, we should note here that students who are going to college while living at home, they also need support systems, especially if their home doesn't include people who know what college is like, for example, first-generation students. So these points apply for our commuter students as well. There are several kinds of support systems, emotional, social, and professional. The ones you build will depend on what kind of support you need to get through college. And these may change from semester to semester.
1: Emotional support systems. These are the people who are in the arena with you. They have your back. They'll defend you from others who don't have your best interests at heart. They cheer for your wins and comfort you when you lose. They don't judge you. They give you feedback you need when you need it. Emotional support systems are usually made up of family members, close friends, mentors, clergy, and therapists or counselors.
0: Then there's social support systems. Now, these are the people who are in your community, the people you're connected to. They provide you with practical support, positive influences, information, advice, resources, and guidance. They basically tell you where to go, who to talk to, and how to get things done. So social support systems include the college infrastructure of advisors, student support services like tutors and academic coaches, athletic coaches, the career center, financial aid advisors, professors, and even and often your classmates.
1: Professional support systems. These are the professional connections who help you work toward your goals. When you're in college, the social and professional support systems often overlap through tutors, professors, advisors, and so on. After all, the professional goals of college are graduation and good grades. After college, the support system often becomes the network of bosses, coworkers, mentors, and professional connections who help you build your career and work toward career goals. All three of these support systems are necessary for success in college as a first-year or fifth-year student. Having people you can go to for help when you're down, for help when you're confused, and for guidance about what the next steps need to be, That's priceless for most students, most of the time. It takes time to build these support systems
0: though. So here are a few tips on how to do that. So first, figure out who's already in your life who already fit into these networks. It shouldn't take long to make a list of people who have your back, people who can tell you what, where, and how, and people who can help you with connections you need to make. Family, friends, professors, coworkers, classmates, all of these might be people who already fit into these support networks that you're building second build on existing connections stay connected with them tell them how important they are to you ask for and accept help from them we'll get to more on that later and give them what you need from them
1: third find people through interests you have in common if you're coming up short on people in your networks branch out find places where you can volunteer or learn something new homeless shelter soup kitchen a book club a gym a professional organization make some new connections, and get them into your support system. or get a trained professional in the mix. For some of the things you'll need support for, a trained professional is a really good idea. Get a therapist, counselor, or coach to help you through some of life's more difficult challenges. These folks will have both the knowledge and the resources to help you out.
0: Now, once you've built a support system, it's important to maintain it. And I will say that as someone who is neurodiverse, we have this thing called friendship decay doesn't happen. Like, I could not talk to someone for five years and still expect us to have the same kind of friendship that we had. But the problem is, for most people, if you aren't staying in touch, if you aren't maintaining these support systems, that friendship or that support just... Goes poof, It disappears. They figure that you don't want to be in their life anymore or they don't want you in your life or they don't want you in their life anymore. And then you just stop connecting. So it's important to do some maintenance on these support systems. So here's a few ways to do that as well. First, show appreciation. Let the other people in your system know that you're grateful for their time and their help because hearing thanks for letting me vent or thanks for telling me about that job opportunity. That's a great way to keep yourself in the appreciation loop. The second thing is stay in touch. And keep those lines of communication open. Send a text every few days just to check in. If you're not good at remembering to stay in touch, then create a calendar reminder on your phone or your planner and reach out on those days. Like, I try to make sure that I get in touch with my aunt, my dad's sister. She's the only last person living on that side of the family in that generation. And my brother, who otherwise I wouldn't talk to at all. I've got calendar reminders that say, hey, you know, call Aunt Charlotte Hey, call Nate. And so I make sure that I get in touch with them once or twice a week, usually with a text message or a phone call.
1: Third, make yourself available when possible while respecting both your own needs and limits and theirs. Everyone has a different tolerance level for certain kinds of activities and everyone has a breaking point. Try to keep yourself and them below those breaking points. Fourth, ask for and accept their help. For some folks, this is really hard. Sounds like I'm talking about me. We want to look like we're self-sufficient or strong. We may want to be the one that helps everyone else. I definitely feel like I'm talking about me. But think about how good it feels when you help someone. Don't you want your friends and family to get that same feeling? You got to let them help you too. It lets them know they have something to offer you too. That they're needed and wanted in your life as much as you're needed and wanted in their lives. It helps maintain balance in what can otherwise become a badly unbalanced connection.
0: Fifth, support their successes and support them through their tough times. You are as much a part of their support network as you're as they're a part of yours, right? This is not one way. Cheer when they win, comfort them when they lose. And sixth, be aware of when it's not working. If you have a friend who always wants you to fix their problems or stresses you out just because they're present, those are indicators it's not working. In the same way, if you feel like you need to fix everyone else's problems or mediate conflicts in your friend group, That may indicate you are pushing yourself too far and putting unreasonable demands on yourself. Your relationship with yourself has to work too. Now, for those who feel compelled to fix everyone else's problems, we recommend writing, this is a steaming cup of not my problem on a Post-it note and sticking it somewhere that you'll see it a lot.
1: Not getting enough sleep. No joke. Trying to get enough sleep is almost always a problem for college students, especially when they're trying to balance a job, schoolwork, and a social life. But as we've talked about in episode 105, lack of sleep can cause a lot of problems. We'll point you to that episode for more help in this area. Not asking for help. Finally, a lot of people have real difficulty asking for help. It's not just college students who struggle with this. Asking for help, for many people, feels like failure or weakness. There's a cultural expectation, at least in most Western nations, that you should be able to do it all on your own without help. And that if you can't, you're needy or incompetent. And in competitive environments, it can be extra scary to ask for help because you don't know if your request is going to be used against you. For some people asking for help makes them feel uneasy because it means giving up some control of what's going on. And that's also
0: scary. Part of the reason we shy away from asking for help too, is that we see help as a dirty word. Only people who are in trouble need help, right? So asking for help must mean we're in trouble and nobody wants to see themselves that way. So one thing we can do, according to lifehack.org, is change the way we see that word. Instead of looking at asking for help as admitting you're weak or that you're a failure, think of it as trying to improve yourself. You're in college in part because you want to become a better version of you. And during times of change, You have the choice to change for the better or for the worse, and there is no time of change like college, trust me. But that doesn't mean you know which direction will necessarily be for the better, and that's where asking for help comes in. I have these two choices. Which one will make me a better person or student or colleague? Asking someone else about that can give you a new perspective and possibly change your choice.
1: Another issue that comes up is how to know when it's time to ask for help. In college, this generally means help finding information or resources you don't have but need. Too many people stress themselves out too much trying to find a solution or solve a problem when they're missing information or resources that would have made the solution possible, and all they had to do was ask someone for help who could provide that information or those resources. Look at what you've already done. What are you still struggling with? If you find yourself thinking, if only I knew X, then the answer is to ask someone who knows about X for that help. That might be a professor, a financial aid advisor, a friend, or a tutor. So identify what you don't know and what you need to know, and then go find a person who knows it. If the help you need is with your mental health or physical health, you'll probably know it if your stress levels or pain levels are rising, if your brain fog is increasing, or if you're struggling with everyday activities and interaction with others. Struggling with usually means it's making you more tired or more stressed than normal. In these cases, go see the mental health center or student health center on campus, tell them what's hurting or overstressed and let them help you with it.
0: Now here are some pointers on how to ask for help because it's really hard for those of us who aren't in practice. So first, it's a mindset thing. Remember, you pay for the services on campus that are designed to help you. Your advisors, your professors, the financial aid officers, the tutors, They not only want you to ask for help, they're expecting you to ask for help. That's what they're there for. So don't beat yourself up for asking for help from people whose job it is to provide it. That's kind of like beating yourself up for asking to buy a burger from the person who's working behind the McDonald's register. That's their job. They're expecting you to ask for that. You don't need to feel bad about this. The second thing is... We have an episode where we talked about how to email your professor. And in that episode, we talked about some ways that don't really work. So let's also avoid asking in ways that make people feel trapped or guilty or coerced when you're asking for help. So these include things like, I'm so sorry to have to ask you for this. Don't don't do that. This makes people feel negative about you and about your request. Or may I ask you a favor? Well, this can make people tr- feel trapped like they don't have a choice because saying no to a favor it makes them feel rude. It makes them feel like a bad person. So don't do that either. I'll help you if you help me. Eh, Be careful about this one. It can come across as pushy. It can even come across as, you know, underhanded. You're trying to get the upper hand. And finally, I don't normally ask for such a tiny thing. Well, that trivializes the contribution they could make to your need. And it kind of makes it pointless to ask for help in the first place if it's that tiny, right?
1: Instead, use what Heidi Grant at the Harvard Business Review calls reinforcements. There are three main kinds of reinforcements you can use to make your request for help seem positive and not a burden on the other person: in-group positive identity and effectiveness. The in-group reinforcement goes like this: make sure you tap into the basic human need to belong and ensure the well-being of their social circle. Using the word together all by itself can create this effect. People told they were working on a task with other people did better on the task and had fewer problems doing it as well as being less tired afterwards than the people who are told they're working independently. You can also invoke a sense of competition, being the only two people of color handling this problem, for example, or being part of a team that wants to win the game. To do this, you want to invoke shared experiences you might've had as people of color or as teammates to spark a desire to help. For example, you might say, ever notice they don't notice us when we speak up in the meetings? Let's get their attention with this presentation. Or we've got a challenging game coming up against the Bears. How do you think we can get past their defensive line? Use lots of we language in this kind of request.
0: The second reinforcement is positive identity. And this involves giving the other person a sense that they have a positive identity. For example, if you ask people if they'd like to be a generous donor versus if they'd like to donate, they're more likely to contribute to charity because that gives them the positive identity. I'm a generous donor. If you give people a sense their identity as someone who routinely helps other people and does it because they enjoy it, they're more likely to help you. So expressing gratitude along with the request for help also works in this area. So if you write an email asking for help and you say thanks in advance or even just thanks, that made it about 15% more likely that people would help when they received a request for help in email. Make sure that when you express gratitude that you're focusing on their generosity and what it says about them as a person not about how you're going to benefit from the help they don't care how you're going to benefit from the help they just care that you will and that it's them that did it that makes them a good person you want to re- reinforce that
1: finally effectiveness reinforcement involves knowing that your actions created a positive difference one study showed that people who were working in a call center who were then told by the people who benefited from their work how much of a benefit they're creating doubled their efforts and the amount of revenue they're bringing in because it felt so good to be told how good of an effect they're having on the world and on other people. One way to get this kind of help is to say, could you look over my paper for my English class before I turn it in? When you took a look at my geography paper a few weeks ago, you caught my grammar mistakes and you helped me get a great grade. I really appreciated your help and feedback. Following up on this request is crucial to the success of this method. Letting them know how their help has helped in the past makes it more likely they'll want to help in the future. It's a win-win. So drop them an email or stop them after class and say, hey, I just wanted to tell you the help you gave me in the in study group really made a difference for me when I took that calculus exam last week. I just got it back and I passed. Thank you for helping me make that happen.
0: Now, our experiences with this stuff, I hate asking for help. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But I've learned to do it because when I need it and I don't ask for it, I find myself sinking further and further into a spiral of panic and self-doubt. So I've had to learn to recognize the signs of needing help. When my frustration levels go up, that's an indicator I need to get someone else's perspective on a situation. If I'm feeling confused and stupid trying to finish a project, that's usually telling me it's time to find an expert that I can ask about so I can move forward. Although it's hard for me because I was shamed for asking for help when I was younger, I find I can actually do more if I just let myself get humble and ask for help when I need it. And I promise you all, it may not sound like it, but it is worth doing. I've had
1: to take electronics and social media diets at certain points, both as an undergrad and in graduate school, because I felt myself starting to fall behind on classwork and I was stressing myself out. Now, for me, fear can be a hell of a motivator, but it's also quite unpleasant to be stressed out so much. And I figured if I was wasting hours on Facebook, if I was surfing the net too much, then I would do that, but I would have to channel it and try and do it after getting my work done. And so I had to train myself. I had to put the phone in a different room so I couldn't look at it. I would have to shut Wi-Fi down if I was just reading for a class so that I would not be tempted to surf the web but it helped me stay on track. And it wasn't like I never went back online even during those days. It just meant I had to channel that energy and focus that time a little bit better than I otherwise was. This episode has been mainly aimed at students, but here's how teachers can use what we've been talking about. Model getting rid of distractions. Don't have your own phone sitting on your desk while your students struggle to ignore theirs. Use the productivity apps we've mentioned, Freedom, Cold Turkey, and show your students how they work.
0: Really give your students a two minute text break about halfway through your class period. Believe it or not, this is going to allow them to refocus on what you're doing and they'll probably be more engaged because it reduces the nagging pressure that their brain is constantly giving them. But what is Joe doing? But what's happening with Katie? But what if my mom texted and it's emergency? The average college class is somewhere between an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long. So letting them check 30 to 40 minutes in for a couple minutes, That's not going to take away from their learning. It's not going to take away from your lesson plan. It's not going to take away from your lecture. But it may help them get better at focusing and being engaged in the second half of class. And that's worth it.
1: Ask your students to map out their support systems early in your class. Ask them to make sure there's at least one person in it that can give them help if they need it, and at least one person who can be their cheering section. Suggest their classmates in your class might be great additions to the support network.
0: And finally, reassure your students that you expect them to ask for help, that it's normal to ask for it. Talk about the things that might be making them less likely to ask for help, like the pressures we talked about and the norms and those fears of asking for help, and normalize it so that students don't feel like they're failures just because they can't do it all on their own. They will thank you later.
1: So that's what we have for you in episode 137. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android, and we're hosted on Blueberry.com. We've decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify, so if you found us there, please take a look at other podcast apps instead. Also, we would appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts.
0: And be sure to join us next week for episode 138, when we'll talk about staying safe on your college campus. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash Easier. We look forward to seeing you next
1: week.